This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. By all standards, the debut year of the Academy Award for Best Song was a success. Con Conrad and Herb Magidson were listed by name in many of the newspapers publishing the results of the award in the days following the February 27, 1935 ceremony. The hubbub that surrounded the elimination of Betty Davis from the Best Actress list in 1934 seemed to have died down as the press celebrated the Best Actress win for Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night. As those involved with It Happened One Night were celebrating their Oscar wins, one of the future pioneers of rock music, Elvis Presley, was celebrating his first month on Earth. Besides that seemingly ordinary birth, a lot was happening in the world in 1935. The game Monopoly made its debut, Alcoholics Anonymous was started, and Porky Pig was introduced as the first Looney Tunes cartoon star for Warner Brothers. The world was making small steps toward another world war as Adolf Hitler increased his dictatorship powers in Germany, and Benito Mussolini was taking a page from Hitler by demolishing certain political oppositions. As for the Academy Award for Best Song, it was business as usual. The Academy kept the limit of three nominees for the award and made no additional stipulations about the songs eligible for the award. With no music branch in the Academy, it was still up to Hollywood songwriters to submit their nominations. Musicals were gaining popularity in the public, and Hollywood was anxious to bring song and dance to the masses as the United States continued to recover from the Great Depression. A little soft shoe, it seemed, would take minds off their troubles for nearly two hours. And the studios found a way to make more money by selling recordings of their popular songs so moviegoers could enjoy them at home. As the movie song business continued to grow, this would drive the studio's reasons to insert songs into non-musical movies and it would help to increase the production of movie musicals as well. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers were a big part of that movie musical renaissance. After appearing in two successful musicals in 1934 and becoming a worldwide sensation, Fred and Ginger would be a part of two of the nominated songs of 1935. The duo's first film of 1935 was Roberta, and it features the Oscar-nominated song Lovely to Look At. Roberta is based on a Broadway musical that ran just nine months in 1933 and 1934 and starred Bob Hope in the role that Fred Astaire would take over in the film. Before we go any further, I will warn you that a lot of plot points will be revealed about this movie and others in this episode. Astaire plays Huck Haynes in the film. He's the leader of a band from Indiana that is hired by a nightclub owner thinking he hired Indians, not Indianians. Astaire manages to get the job at the nightclub thanks to an old friend, Lizzie, played by Ginger Rogers. Lizzie has been posing as a countess in Paris, believing that the fake nobility is helping her get well-paying singing jobs. Top billing in the film went to Irene Dunn, playing a dressmaker named Stephanie who is hiding her nobility as a Russian princess as she fulfills her dream of designing famous dresses. Some of the songs from the Broadway show transferred to the film, including the song Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. 
That song has become one of the greatest entries into the American songbook, featured in so many films and covered by so many singers in the 20th century that it's almost impossible to keep count. Because it was a part of the Broadway version, it was not eligible for the Academy Award. As for Lovely to Look At, it is the final song performed in the film. Stephanie is hosting a fashion show at the Roberta House of Dresses with some amazing designs on display. Stephanie emerges from a room in a white gown and begins to sing about the amazing effect that the right dress can have to make a man fall in love with a woman. Some of the members of the band will rise and sing the chorus as Stephanie descends the staircase and sees the man she loves in the audience. Realizing that she might not have lost him, Stephanie sings the song to him before making a grand exit. Just a couple of minutes later, we get a reprise of the song by Fred Astaire, 
who has been serving as the band leader for the fashion show. He's singing to Ginger Rogers, who has entered the room in a silk black dress, ready for a dance with Astaire. Oddly enough, they dance to Smoke Gets in Your Eyes after Astaire's vocal performance, instead of Lovely to Look At. Delightful to know and heaven to kiss A combination like this He's quite my most impossible dream come true Imagine finding a boy like you You're lovely to look at It's thrilling to hold you terribly tight For we're together, the moon is you And oh, it's lovely to look at you Jerome Kern was the original composer for the songs in the Broadway version of Roberta, and he composed those songs with Otto Harbach, who was so synonymous with Broadway that he seemingly refused to work on the Hollywood adaptation. RKO hired Dorothy Fields, a prolific lyricist in Hollywood, to write some new songs to fit the revised plot. Though Fields did supply a lyric for Lovely to Look At specifically to fit the film plot, the melody had been written by Kern for possible inclusion in the Broadway play about three years earlier. When it was discarded because of its short length and unconventional 16-bar melody, Kern decided to put it away for use somewhere else. That somewhere else turned out to be the film adaptation of Roberta, and it garnered him his first Oscar nomination. Before he made his film music debut in Roberta, Kern had written nearly two dozen scores for Broadway shows, including Showboat in 1927. That show features two very popular songs, Old Man River and Can't Help Loving That Man. And that was the only Jerome Kern Broadway show that managed to find much success. Dorothy Fields, as I said, was a prolific songwriter. Many biographies note that she wrote about 400 songs for Hollywood and Broadway between 1928 and 1973. So quick was she at writing lyrics that she was able to set Kern's unused melody to words in just 12 hours. Here's an interview with Fields from 1970 in which she talks more about writing the lyric to Lovely to Look At. So Pandro Berman, who produced the picture, called me in one day and he said, we need something for the fashion show. You've rewritten the fashion show for Freddie Astaire, but we need something for Irene Dunn to sing because we... We're expecting to put her in a costume that costs about $8,000. And she really should sing something in anything as expensive as that. So he said, I'd like it to be a song that could be used both as something to show off clothes in a fashion show and that could be one of the love songs in the picture. It was a kind of tall order. And he played the melody, which I loved. He said, now, do you suppose you could have this by, like, tomorrow morning? And, of course, that's the way they did things in those days. But I was very much younger and very ambitious and a little frightened at the idea of doing anything written by Mr. Kern, who I didn't know. And I said, well, does Mr. Kern know that I'm supposed to do this? He said, no, but well, let's see how it is first. Well, the song was, and the title I luckily got, was Lovely to Look At. And Pandro was excited about it, and Irene Dunn loved it. And they decided to go ahead and produce it. All this time... 
Jerry Kern was in the East and didn't know very much about what was going on at RKO. But nevertheless, Irene Dunn appeared in this beautiful $8,000 costume, and they built a set, and they did a wonderful orchestration and had a fashion show. And the whole thing was what they called in the can, which meant it had been shot and produced. And then they sent Mr. Kern a record. Well, nobody on the lot at RKO slept for two or three nights, because you can imagine what would happen if it turned out that Jerry Kern didn't like it. Well, he did like it. He liked it very much. And he came out to California a few weeks after, and he wanted to meet me because he was to do another picture for Lily Pons with Henry Fonda, and he said, I think I'd like Dorothy Fields to do the lyrics. And that was the first time I was presented to Mr. Kern. And when I met him, walked into the room, kind of shaking a bit, he left the piano and came up and kissed me. Well, that was the start of a very wonderful association with Jerome, Kern, and myself. Fields was not the only female songwriter in Hollywood, but because of her energetic work ethic, she was at the top of the list of in-demand songwriters, male or female, in the early to mid-1930s. Beginning in 1928, Fields collaborated with composer Jimmy McHugh for a series of Broadway shows and later films made by RKO Pictures. Though McHugh did absolutely zero work in crafting Lovely to Look At, he got official songwriting credit thanks to a deal he worked out in 1928 to be listed on every song Fields wrote, whether he participated or not. That clause in the contract put McHugh on the official Academy record as a nominee for writing Lovely to Look At and a possible recipient of the Academy Certificate of Merit if the song should win. Perhaps it was this controversial move that caused Fields and McHugh to officially end their partnership that same year. Our second nominated song is Cheek to Cheek, and it comes from the film Top Hat, starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers again, and this time in their second film with director Mark Sandrich after The Gay Divorcee, and their second film of 1935. RKO Pictures had given Sandrich the responsibility of handling Fred Astaire in his early years in movies, and we have Sandrich to thank for shaping films that fit Astaire's strengths. Astaire and Rogers tackled this film about three months after finishing their work on Roberta. The order from RK Studio head David Selznick was to shape a movie that very closely mirrored the successful movie The Gay Divorcee. So producer Pan Berman reunited director March Sandrich with Astaire and Rogers, as well as a few others from The Gay Divorcee, for Top Hat. Just as they were in The Gay Divorcee, Fred and Ginger are a couple who fall in love at the beginning of the film, fall out of love in the middle, and rekindle that love before the finale. Ginger Rogers is Dale, a single woman who is making a living as the model for dresses worn by the Italian designer Bedini. Dale takes a trip to Venice with Bedini, and Jerry follows her there to propose marriage. The plot involves Dale mistaking Jerry for Jerry's friend, who is married to Dale's traveling companion. Dale is furious at Jerry for making advances at her while married, and since Jerry isn't aware that she is confused about his identity, he takes her onto the dance floor in Venice and tries to woo her again with dance. As soon as he begins to sing Cheek to Cheek, Dale softens and the two enjoy what is probably the most loved Fred and Ginger duet of all time, featuring a tough-to-sing set of ascending notes and dance moves that have Ginger Rogers performing some nimble backbends, particularly at the end of the number. The most difficult part of the number, according to Astaire in his autobiography, was dealing with the ostrich feathers that covered Ginger Rogers' dress. 
So many feathers fell off the dress during filming that it took a large number of takes to get it right. But a little tenacity led to some great long takes where you can't see one feather floating through the air. It's all grace and agility and elegance in this five-minute performance. All I know is that it's heaven. I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I see. When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Heaven. I'm in heaven. And the cares that hung around me through the week. Seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to climb a mountain And to reach the highest peak But it doesn't thrill me half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to go out fishing in a river or a creek But I don't enjoy it half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Dance with me I want my arm about you The charm about you Will carry me through to heaven I'm in heaven and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I seek When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek
The song was written by Irving Berlin, who I mentioned in the first episode as a writer of one of the songs in The Jazz Singer back in 1927. Berlin's humble beginnings as a Russian immigrant, born Israel Berlin, to become one of the most popular songwriters in history is nothing short of amazing. The most amazing thing about Berlin and his career in show business is that he never learned how to read music, at least not formally. One of Berlin's biographers wrote that Berlin taught himself the basics of reading music and playing piano while working at music halls in New York City. It was there, while working as a songwriter for the famed Tin Pan Alley Song Production Factory, that he created the professional name Irving Berlin. When it came time for Berlin to write songs, he could only hash them out on the piano in F sharp, as that was the only key in which he could play because it involved only black keys on the piano. Luckily, he found a special piano that had a lever to change the key while he still played the F-sharp keys. By the time Berlin was officially a part of the Hollywood songwriting crowd, he had already become a sought-after composer, writing the popular Alexander's Ragtime Band and sparking a major dance craze in 1911. By 1911, Berlin was a very popular and very rich songwriter, crafting hundreds of songs. In 1918, he wrote God Bless America while serving in the Army as a thank you to the country that had adopted him and gave him so many opportunities. But the song went into a trunk for 20 years until it was performed by Kate Smith on her popular radio show in 1938. Since then, it has become a second national anthem, and I'm sure you were surprised when I said that it was written by Irving Berlin. In the 1930s, Irving Berlin was also one of the few solo songwriters in Hollywood. In his biography of Irving Berlin, Lawrence Bergring wrote that Berlin's decision to write the music and lyrics himself came from a seemingly selfish decision to keep all the royalties and reduce the number of collaborators who would inevitably change his original ideas. In summer 1919, Berlin was one of the first songwriters to form his own publishing house, called Irving Berlin Incorporated. His success in the business meant he was listened to about the art of songwriting. He made a list of nine rules that dictated his thoughts on successful songwriting. A catchy title, a melody that nearly any singer could handle, and a universally recognizable theme were just three of the rules. Making the song sexless, meaning it could be sung by a man or a woman, was another one of his major rules. Think of any Irving Berlin song that you know, including Cheek to Cheek, and you'll find that they follow these rules. The only rule that Berlin broke for Cheek to Cheek was the conventional 32-bar length. In order to create music for the three-minute dance sequence, Berlin had to compose Cheek to Cheek in 64 bars. And like many other songs that have Berlin's name on them, Cheek to Cheek was written in just one day, with the help of pianist Hal Bourne. While Berlin was coming up with the lyrics, Bourne fleshed out the rest of the music. For example, Berlin came up with the first word of the song, Heaven, and Bourne helped Berlin continue the flow by filling in the gaps. However, Bourne nor any of Berlin's accompanists ever got songwriting credit. Top Hat was Berlin's second film assignment after Hallelujah in 1929, and this was his first full-length film song score submission. Berlin desperately wanted Top Hat to be a major stepping stone into writing for movies, and he put months into working writing songs for the film. Berlin wrote more than 10 songs for Top Hat, but only five survive, while the discarded songs were repurposed for other films later. While working on the songs for Top Hat, Berlin was thinking about songs for his next assignment with Fred and Ginger. 
One of those songs would be a duet about Christmas memories. The only thing Berlin had at the time was the melody, and while Astaire liked it when he heard it played for him during filming of Top Hat, nothing was made of it. Now that song turned out to be White Christmas, which would be Berlin's biggest hit. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. We'll be talking about White Christmas in a future episode. The third nominee for Best Song is Lullaby of Broadway from the film Gold Diggers of 1935. There are a lot of gold diggers in this film, all swarming around a rich widow who is trying to hold on to her money as the hotel where she is staying tries to swindle her for a lot of money to put on the season-ending charity show. Gold Diggers of 1935 was the fourth in the Gold Diggers movie series and the first to be based on an original idea. Busby Berkeley, the famed choreographer who had become so famous he got his own production win at Warner Brothers, was directing his first film, and he handles the non-dancing scenes quite well. Only three songs are featured in this film, with the love song, The Words Are In My Heart, seeming like the centerpiece of the film. It's the love song sung by Dick Powell to the girl he is falling in love with, the daughter of the rich widow. That song becomes the opening number in the charity show at the end of the hotel summer season as well, but it's not the major production of the show. Harry Warren and Al Dubin reunited with Busby Berkeley for Gold Diggers of 1935. You'll remember them from the last episode as being shut out of the Oscar nominee list for I Only Have Eyes for You from Dames, and the writers of many of the songs for the film 42nd Street, which had been made before the best song category was created. Since they were essentially the songwriters for all the Busby Berkeley numbers, Warren and Dubin were responsible in Gold Diggers of 1935 for putting to music Berkeley's idea of a 13-minute musical number that has nothing to do with the plot of the movie, but would turn out to be the standout moment of the film. It's not known where Gold Diggers of 1935 is set, but it's certainly not New York City, and none of the characters in the film have a connection with the city or Broadway. Warren and Dubin created the song Lullaby of Broadway with no concrete plan to include it in Gold Diggers of 1935, but rather to give Busby Berkeley an option for any of the current or future production numbers he was envisioning. Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, didn't like the song, but Berkeley wanted it badly and won over Jack Warner. Berkeley makes Lullaby of Broadway the concluding number in this charity show in the film, and the production is just as big and as elaborate as The Words Are In My Heart, which featured dozens of pianos moving about the stage. So big, in fact, that it couldn't have possibly been staged on the hotel's normal side stage. But this is the movies, and our belief is suspended once the stage opens up into a new realm. It begins with actress Winifred Shaw appearing against a black backdrop with only her face lit as she sings. It's a love song to the people who come alive at night in New York and frequent the nightclubs. One of the lines illustrates this point. When the Broadway baby says goodnight, it's early in the morning. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. The hip hooray and ballyhoo, the lullaby of Broadway. The rumble of the subway train, the rattle of the taxis, the daffodils who entertain at Angelo's and Maxine's when the Broadway baby says goodnight. It's early in the morning. Manhattan babies don't sleep tight until the dawn. Good night, baby. Good night. 
Lullaby of Broadway, the Heidi High and Poopa do. The lullaby of Broadway, the band begins to go to town and everyone goes crazy. You rock by your baby round till everything gets hazy. Hush, a buy, I'll buy you this and that. You'll hear a daddy saying, and baby goes home to her flat to sleep all day. Good night. After she finishes singing, her face turns into the outline of Manhattan, where we are treated to a nearly wordless 11-minute montage of Shaw out on the town with her boyfriend, played here by Dick Powell. Here's just a few minutes of that, featuring more of Dubin's lyrics as Shaw returns home in the morning as everyone else is headed out. Thank you. 
milkman's on his way. Sleep tight, baby. Sleep tight. I'll call it a day. Hey. The conclusion features Shaw and Powell on a balcony enjoying what seems like a hundred dancers entertaining them. It's a big splashy number, and one can only imagine the blood, sweat, and tears it took for Berkeley to make this happen. The dancers pick up the song at the end, which features Shaw fighting off the barrage of dancers that push her to her death off the balcony. The scene returns to Shaw in her face-only shot to close out the song. It's haunting, daring, and quite brilliant. A table for two, a lady divine, a rhapsody blue, a bottle of wine. Then you'll listen to a siren song. Come and shuffle along. Come and dance. My sweetie may not let me. Come and dance. Why don't you come and get me? Watching this 13-minute scene, I'm transported 16 years into the future when we see a similar finale in An American in Paris, a 15-minute music-only dance sequence, though that one has an actual connection to the film's plot. Even though Lullaby of Broadway seemed out of place in the film, critics went crazy for it after seeing it in the fall of 1935. Quote, The best thing director Busby Berkeley has ever done, end quote, wrote E. Metzler for the Washington, D.C. Evening Star, while calling the film as a whole, quote, 
a tepid duplicate of its sisters and its cousins and its aunts, end quote. The Los Angeles Times also loved Lullaby of Broadway, praising Shaw's singing and Berkeley's staging and giving praise for the entire film. Busby Berkeley would later say that it was his favorite song to stage. Because the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences allowed songwriters to nominate only one of their songs from 1935, Warren and Dubin likely had a difficult choice to make in submitting Lullaby of Broadway for consideration. In addition to the three they wrote for Gold Diggers of 1935, they also contributed about a dozen songs to at least three other films. One of those standout songs was About a Quarter to Nine, sung by Al Jolson as he sings about getting together with his love at 8.45 p.m. in the film Go Into Your Dance. Life begins when somebody's eyes look into your own. Life begins when you've got your gal all alone. From morning until twilight, I don't know I'm alive. But I know love begins at 8.45 The stars are going to twinkle and shine It's evening about a quarter to nine My loving arms are going to tenderly twine We greet twine There's a 40-second dissolve into Jolson and his group of male dancers dressed in blackface, while Jolson's real wife, Ruby Keeler, dances in front of them. The men return to their normal faces for the remainder of the song. Going to Your Dance has long since been regarded as a favorite Al Jolson film, in spite of the blackface, with many fans saying it's better produced than the jazz singer. Though Warren and Dubin might have listed Lullaby of Broadway on their Academy nomination ballot at the expense of about a quarter to nine, that didn't mean that Jolson's song was out of the running. Whatever song by a songwriting team got the most votes is the song that would be nominated, and a songwriting team could only be nominated for one song each year according to the Academy rules at the time. So Warren and Dubin's peers might have liked about a quarter to nine, but not more than Lullaby of Broadway. Another popular song was The Lady in Red, featuring dance steps choreographed by Busby Berkeley in the film In Caliente. Of course, the film is in black and white, so you'll never see anyone wearing red in the film. But it's really the titular woman's free-willing ways that make her so intriguing, not necessarily her dress. This song was composed by Allie Rubel and Mort Dixon. Both were in contract with Warner Brothers, and they were essentially the B-team, as it were, for the Busby Berkeley numbers that Harry Warren and Al Dubin couldn't do. of art without a question who gives your heart a queer congestion say have you ever met the dream in the red velvet gown if you will pardon my suggestion you'd better write her number down she's the gay young bird all the magazines feature upon my word she's the zippiest creature yeah yeah 
As I mentioned, the film is in black and white, so when a woman steps onto the dance floor with an unknown man and dances with him for about three minutes, you can only imagine that her flowing dress is red velvet, as the song implies. No matter how suggestive as the song and dance might be, it couldn't garner enough interest to get an Oscar nomination. The song category was the third award announced at the 8th Academy Awards on March 5, 1936. Dorothy Field's nomination made her the first woman to receive an Oscar nod in the song category, and she was looking to be the second woman to win an Oscar outside of the acting categories. Women had been recognized at the Oscars since the second year when two women were nominated for writing. Frances Marion is the first woman to win an Oscar, taking a writing award in 1931 and again in 1932. Director Frank Capra, one year removed from winning his first Oscar, was now president of the Academy and handed the award to the winning songwriters. That team was Harry Warren and Al Dubin for Lullaby of Broadway, taking away a lot of the sting the two might have felt from not getting a nomination the year before for I Only Have Eyes for You. With the win, Lullaby of Broadway sets the record for the longest Oscar-winning song at 13 minutes and 44 seconds, beating the Continental by about one minute. As the standard for movie songs changes, it's likely that this record will not be eclipsed, but we'll see. The Academy released the ranking of votes the following day, and Cheek to Cheek placed second, while Lovely to Look At finished third in voting. Lullaby of Broadway has become one of the signature tunes for Broadway, performed often at the Tony Awards, and used in movies as the camera shows the famous theater district. Its win and the hefty box office for the Gold Digger series showed that the trend of making what was called backstage musicals was successful. A backstage musical shows us what goes on in the planning and execution of a stage show or musical while presenting many of the songs as rehearsal performances or final stage performances in the film's big show. In the next 15 years, a lot of the Academy Award-nominated songs will come from backstage musicals. A few of them will join Lullaby of Broadway as classics. Cheek to Cheek has enjoyed a long-lasting life too, but probably much longer than Lullaby of Broadway. Cheek to Cheek became a top 10 song on the radio show Your Hit Parade just a few weeks before Top Hat made its world premiere. Fred Astaire recorded the song for radio play just before the film premiered, and it stayed on the top of the music charts for 11 weeks. 
That was Astaire's longest stay at the top of the charts at that point, and its popularity prompted it to be covered by more than 400 singers in the 80 years since. I won't list all of them, but some of the well-known names include Doris Day, Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, and a duet by Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. And it was included in the American Film Institute's list of the 100 best songs of the first 100 years of motion pictures. It ranked at number 15, helped in no small part by its appearance in several other movies since 1935. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Oscar-nominated songs for 1935 on today's episode of the Best Song Podcast. We'll pick it up next time with six nominees for the award on the next episode. Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire will duke it out for the award, and we'll also hear a song from another great songwriter, Cole Porter. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode of the Best Song Podcast. I look forward to doing it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law. 